Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, that you have put it on our lips to sing your praises and to encourage one another, to preach to one another in song. And Lord, I pray that as your word now is, is opened to be preached, uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless us, that you would uh, control my words, um, and that, Lord, that your word, which is found in Isaiah, Lord, that that would shepherd us, that we would be as your sheep who are led by a shepherd who has already died for our sins. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading at verse 5. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Been a couple weeks since we were at it last because we got to celebrate Easter. Before we read, I want to ask you a question. Maybe a couple of questions. Who would you say is in control of the world right now? Because it does seem like we could name a few men with lots of money and power and influence and tanks. And even amongst us in, in this church here, I find we often start talking as if these men have control of the world. And the majority of them are wicked as judged by God's word. And they have often wicked intentions and plans. So does that then mean that the world is controlled by wicked plans? Or maybe it is that God controls the world and these men, and therefore they're not responsible for their actions. They're just doing these things against their will. The answer, as we're going to find here in Isaiah, is neither of those things are true. These men are not in control of the world. God is. Yet these men are also personally responsible for their wicked actions. And God will hold them accountable for their intentions, for how they ruled and for their power that they forced on other people and the wicked agendas that they seek. They have wicked intentions and they will be held responsible for them. But God has holy intentions. And dear friends, if you think that these men are in control, and you could name their names, apart from God, and they are accomplishing their purposes, you will fear them, and you will fear their agendas. And you will lean on them, or you will lean on men just like them with a, just a different political party or stock symbol. But instead you must look to God's agenda and his intentions for their power and humbly and confidently submit to God's holy purposes. Now this was certainly true for the mighty Assyrian empire as they threatened the people of Israel and Judah from afar were they acting apart from God's plan? Were they acting outside of his control? Or perhaps God's intentions were the same as their intentions? Neither. God uses wicked tools for holy purposes. 
Let's pick this up in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. And we'll read 5 to 11. This is God speaking. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him. To take spoil and seize plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Assyria, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Syria like Damascus? As my hand has reached into the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images thus far? So the people of Israel and Jerusalem were very well aware of the powerful and ruthless empire of Assyria. The news had spread far and they were terrified. The coming Assyrian invasion, the coming war with Assyria, it was prophesied actually by the prophets of the Lord. And it was prophesied for the sins of his people who now were split into two nations. We've already seen this, right? Israel was split into two nations at this point. We've got the nation of Israel on the top 10 tribes, and we've got the, Israel, the, the nation of Judah on the bottom. Israel's capital city in the north was Samaria. That's why you hear him, the king of Assyria, boast about killing Samaria. And we have Judah's capital city is Jerusalem in the south. What we have to see here is that this is actually God's plan because of God's wrath. And the people of Israel and Judah, they were afraid of Assyria's wrath. But Isaiah is saying, no, 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 this is coming because of my wrath, because of God's wrath. They could feel the wicked empire of Assyria breathing down their necks. It was a wicked empire. It was a godless and ruthless and idolatrous empire. It was ruled by an egomaniac who acted as if he were a god. He executes wrath and anger and he destroys and steals and he kills. But Israel and Jerusalem were to know that this has not happened because of Assyria's wicked wrath. No, it was happening because of God's holy wrath. God uses wicked tools for holy purposes. God's purposes are made clear in the book of Isaiah so far. And, and here you can see that they are summarized. He says, against the people of my wrath, this is God talking about Israel, I command him to take the spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This is executing God's plan to fulfill his purposes of wrath and anger toward Israel and Judah. Assyria is called the wrath of God's anger, a tool in God's hand executing judgment for sin and holiness. And so the conquering armies and apparent global domination of Assyria was actually not a demonstration of Assyria's sovereignty. It's a demonstration of the Lord God of Israel's sovereignty. He's showing that he is holy, that he is the judge of the whole earth and in particular Israel. He has made covenant promises to Israel. Israel, he treated as his bride. 
and Israel's people he treated as his children. And so the character of God was supposed to be able to be seen from afar as you look to Israel. These are God's children. This is God's bride. And so he promised to discipline them, to discipline Israel when they sinned, to show that he was father and also that he hated sin and that he loved righteousness. And so he had holy plans to respond to their sin. He had holy intentions. And yet he used a wicked tool to accomplish those intentions. He uses wicked Assyria. Assyria did not have the same intentions as God did. We saw this already here in this passage, right? They thought it was the fulfillment of their master plan. World domination. It says in verse 7 that their intentions are not what God's intentions were. God's goal was the discipline of his people. But we see here a serious plan was to cut off a whole bunch of nations, just eliminate them, erase them from the earth, rewriting history, redrawing the maps. It's one thing to want to be a king. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. Should have sung that. But here we see the king of Assyria. What is he boasting about? That he's king of kings. And that is a very dangerous thing to boast about in sight of God. He sees himself as the king of kings or the ruler of rulers or the Lord of lords. We see that in verses 8 and 9. And he's basically saying, I'm just going to keep doing what I've already done. Every nation is ruled by a set of idols. I've been reaching into those nations of idols, strong idols, strong gods. And I've just taken their people. Their stuff. It's, this is nothing new except with Israel. This nation's God is not as strong as the other nations. So this is actually going to be one more step in world domination. And it's actually going to be an easier step than the, than the earlier steps. This is showing that I rule the world. Uh, this is showing that uh, everything belongs to me and that I answer to no one. This is what's going on with Assyria's intentions. But the people of God are to hear this boasting. They're going to hear this and they're supposed to know that, it, that the world is not in the hands of wicked men. God holds these wicked and powerful men in his holy hands to accomplish his holy will. Now they don't know it. These tools, these wicked tools, Assyria, they don't know it. And they don't even need to know it. They don't have to agree with it. They don't even have to be convinced to do God's will. God will accomplish his sovereign will over people over whom he is sovereign, even if they're not submissive to him. He's actually going to even use their sinful intentions for his glory and to accomplish his holy purposes. That means church. That God's will is being accomplished. No matter who happens to have the biggest army. Or the most money. Or the most shares in Twitter. We never have to worry that we're losing. We never have to worry that these things are not in the hands of God. Because they are in God's hands. Know it or not like it or not. Satan was not having his way in the church during COVID. He was not even having his way in the world during COVID. He's not having his way with the LGBTQ revolution. He's not, he's not winning. It's not his plan that is being unfurled. It's the King of Zion. 
It's the king of Israel. Always. Even when the most wicked person in the world has the most power in the world. There is no break in this chain. There are no exceptions to this chain. The law banning churches from counseling people away from homosexual and transgender sin is a law that God hates and probably a law that Satan loves, but Satan is not winning. It's not even like this is a step backward for God, oh, but he'll make up for it. This is God accomplishing his holy purposes. This is God winning. So we don't need to worry church. This is not the unholy plans of a wicked genius unfolding as we stand powerless to stop it. This is the holy plans of a holy genius coming true while we stand powerless to stop it. And so in the case of Israel, God's plan was to judge them for their sin. Israel and Judah, they were the Old Testament corporate people of God. They were the visible gathering of the people of God. That doesn't mean that everyone in Israel was God's child. Only those who had faith in the gospel were God's children. But it was this visible gathering of people. It was them you were to look at to know who God was and to know what he thinks of things and what he loves and what he hates to know his and see his promises coming true. Where God gathered them and shepherded them as a group. And in the new covenant after Christ has come, what remains the same is that not all who uh, is that only those who trust in the gospel are God's children and God's corporate official gathering of where you can find his people. This group that he shepherds is now simply called the church and it's not restricted to one nation or another. It's a nation within every nation, but even in the church, even those people who visibly are outwardly part of the church who confess that they belong to Christ who are baptized and publicly say, we are the church. Not all of them are saved. Not all of them know God and are his children. And so what remains the same Old Testament and New Testament, that is uh, the word of God after Christ has come, is that God uses his sovereignty over all of creation to shepherd his people and to discipline them and to show who is in fact his and who is in fact not his to identify those who truly belong to them. To discipline and shape them and care for them and hold them. Friends, this is the master plan which was coming to fruition over the last two years. Over the last 20 years. Over the last 200 years. Over the last 2,000 years. Over the last 10,000 years. This is the master plan that we get to see unfolding. It is not the plan of the Illuminati or the Davos agenda or the World Economic Forum, not the American Democratic Party, not the Clinton Foundation, not the Republican Party, not the Tea Party, not Twitter, not Google, not the Chinese Communist Party's plan, not the globalist plan, not Vladimir Putin's plan, not Hollywood's plan, not Silicon Valley's plan unfolding. This is not what we're seeing. It's not their agenda that we get to see unfurled on the world stage. It's not that none of these people would want to be in control. Many of them do want to be in control. It's not that none of them have wicked master plans. Many of them do have wicked master plans. It's not even that none of these people think they're in control. Many of them do think they're in control. The question, dear friends, is whether we agree with them 
that they're in control or whether we agree with God that he is in fact in control. (laughs) Notice, notice that God is not simply saying that God deserves sovereignty and that he should be in control. That's not what he's saying. Those, Those things are true. What he is saying then and even now when Assyria has the ability to reach into every nation and to take and kill and they will not submit to God's authority is that they are under his control. Not simply that they should be. They are under God's control, accomplishing his master plan, which is to gather and keep and discipline and shape and hold and glorify a people precious to himself because he loves them, even though they don't deserve it. And they have been redeemed by his son's blood. That's what's happening. Second point, the wicked rulers used by God foolishly think they are stronger than he is. The rulers, the wicked rulers used by God foolishly think they're stronger than he is. Let's keep reading in verses 12 to 14. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest, the wealth of the people. As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Thus far, God's word. So this stanza in the prophecy shows why God will judge Assyria. And the next stanza speaks on how he will judge them. Verse 12, he tells us that once God's plan is done for Zion, for Jerusalem with Assyria, that he's going to now punish Assyria and he's going to tell us why, why do they deserve it? It's because they think that they're stronger than the God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel. The King of Assyria was so bold to say that what he has done and conquered, uh, how he's conquered all these peoples because he was wise and strong. And he, he claims power and glory and wisdom that really only do belong to God. It's God alone who determines the boundaries of nations and people groups and languages and kingdoms. God alone. Wicked and perhaps good men as well try to redraw boundary maps. And they think they're doing it to accomplish their agenda, but they're only accomplishing God's agenda. So the king of Assyria brags that he's, he's treating nations as birds nests with, with eggs in them and that Nobody can stop him. Those birds whose eggs he's taking, they can't even, they're not even going to chirp, not even lift a wing to stop him because he considers himself God. But this man didn't even choose his own family. He didn't choose his own country or his nation or his people group. He didn't choose the time of his birth. He didn't choose his parents or the names of his parents. This man is completely under God's sovereign power and authority. He didn't choose to be born. God chose all of these things. Now, if we go back, actually, I know it's against the rules, go back into verses 10 and 11. I know we're not supposed to backtrack, but if you do, you see a little bit more of the wickedness on display here. 
So the king of Assyria thought Israel and Judah were going to be easy targets because they were at least on paper, not idol worshipers. Now we know they're very much idol worshipers, which is why God is sending Assyria to destroy them. This is actually what's making them weak is that they're worshiping idols, but officially on paper, they're monotheists. And so what you see here is the king of Assyria. He thinks they're vulnerable for the exact opposite reason why they are. He thinks they're vulnerable because they're not idol worshipers enough, but it's exactly the opposite case. They are vulnerable because they are worshiping idols. Dear friends, we see this as well in our day that the world is angry at the church and thinks the church will not last. And they think the church will not last, not uh, they, they think the church will not last because the church is not worldly enough. They think that's what makes them vulnerable, but it is in fact the exact opposite. What would make the church vulnerable if God was not sovereign is that she does act like the nations. God's plan includes generous doses of irony, of poetic justice, of allowing wicked men to become more and more arrogant and sure of the reason of their success before embarrassing their boasts. God permitted this wicked boasting that his people would be weak because they had not rejected enough of God's commands. That's why the boasting is. But he would not permit that forever. The wicked tool God uses for holy purposes, they expose their sin by their boasts. And this is not outside of God's, God's plan. This too is part of it. Here's, here's why this is a helpful part of God's plan. This, this, these wicked people gaining so much power and then boasting. Because humanity would often claim that we're not that sinful. We're just weak and, and we fail to keep some of God's commands. We, and that his judgments are actually not reasonable. Sending us to hell, treating us like enemies. This is a very unreasonable thing to do for people who just make mistakes or who fail. But when God permits, even raises up and uses men with nearly un rivaled unstoppable power who really these men have no reason to stop sinning. What God is able to show through them is what is actually at the core of all sin. Sin is a desire to dethrone God is to say, I would do a better job at Godding than God. If I was God, life would be better for me and for everyone else. By permitting Pharaoh to gain so much control and power, God was not just showing how bad Pharaoh's sin was, but how how bad all sin is and what would happen if he was not actively pressing it down. Friends, this was the lie in the Garden of Eden. That life would be better if we were parallel with God, rival gods, and even just maybe were able to overrule him once in a while or perhaps all the time. And this is what's going on in your heart and mine when we sin from day to day. It is this foolish and suicidal belief that we would do a better job. Life would be better. There would be more joy if we just for a time didn't act as if God was God. And maybe we acted as if we were God. 
Our third point is this. God will judge the arrogant tool he uses. Let's see this in 15 to 19. Such irony here. Beautiful. Isaiah 10, 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? Hews with it, sorry. Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Well, let's leave it there for a minute. So you might actually think that Assyria is going to get a pass for wickedness because God, God used Assyria for his own holy plan. Assyria is merely a tool in God's hand. But what we need to see here is Assyria did none of these wicked things against its will. In fact, they would have been much more wicked if God had not restrained them. God never creates fresh sin in people. He uses his sovereign control over all things. He decides which wicked actions to stop and which, which ones to continue and which ones will come to pass. This is, we, we believe in the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity it means that after the fall into sin, every single part of our nature was infected and corrupted by sin. Every single thing was corrupted and tainted and made sinful about us. Everything. But we don't believe in the doctrine of utter depravity. That's a false doctrine. And that means we're as bad as we could be. That God has not restrained any sin. That's not true. God is, in fact, you could argue that God has restrained most sin. In his grace toward a fallen world, which would be utter chaos and unlivable, he has restrained most sin in order to show grace and to have life possible on this planet. He has restrained most sin. And so when we say God is sovereign over history and he is the author of events that include sin in them, we don't say that God is inventing sin or even authoring sin. But he is using his sovereignty over it to accomplish his purpose. The king of Assyria would have been way worse if God had permitted. Hitler would have been way worse if God would have permitted. Whether you are saved or unsaved, what is certainly true is that you would have been worse if God had permitted. You would have done what Hitler did. You would have done what the king of Assyria would have done were it not but for the grace of God. And the same is true for me. And so God is free and right and good to judge these people for their sin. The arrogance of a created being boasting as if you were God, like an ax boasting about it, what it has done, it only lasts for a time. God will expose that sin and he will put it on display as a warning for other people. But that boasting will not last forever. So God often shames these men in history. 
Sometimes he shames them. He judges them publicly before they die. Sometimes it's not till the next generation after they die, they are shamed and held openly in history as shamed people. They're canceled. Sorry, I shouldn't use that word. Sometimes though, it doesn't happen. Sometimes their wickedness goes in history unnoticed or uncondemned. But even these men, for even these men and nations, this is not how it will end because one day, they will stand naked before a holy God against the God that they once thought they were a good match for. But Assyria actually gets their partial judgment in history. You see this. God has already prophesied that he would create a remnant of a people, a little piece of a ripped garment. And that's going to be the fate of Assyria After all their bragging, they're going to become just a little remnant. How small? I love the imagery here. If a little kid was learning his numbers, you would use how big Assyria was to help him count. One, two, three. See how God is just shaming these people who are bragging? You're going to be in a grade one math textbook. That's how easy it will be to count you. After crushing Israel, we see in history... And harming Judah, that will be their zenith. That will be the height of their glory. And after that, it will be downhill from there for Assyria. They actually will not even get the pleasure of being the ones who conquer Jerusalem. Let's go to chapter. Point number four. (laughs) The same holiness which condemns also forgives and reconciles those whom God calls my people. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 to 34. We'll read this. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as sand on the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian on the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat thus far. So Assyria is first called a remnant, right? God say, I'm going I'm to make them, I'm going to pare them right down to being a remnant, crushed and judged by the holy wrath of God. But here too, we read of a different remnant. It is Zion. The city of David is Jerusalem. It's a remnant, but it is a different kind of remnant, right? We have some descriptions as to this remnant. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a repentant remnant. It's a forgiven remnant. 
one which enjoys the affection and love of God. A remnant which is turned to the Lord to trust in him. Instead of trusting in Syria or Assyria, after the judgment with God uh, strikes them, using wicked tools, they will trust in the Lord. God's purpose for this striking will be accomplished. His people will love him. And more importantly, will be loved by him, experiencing his love. Israel was a large nation at one point. Sand is seashore large, but God will make them only a remnant. But a remnant who knows the Lord. Do you notice how he calls them my people? That's beautiful. Such wickedness described in them in the last passage. Such wickedness. Wickedness upon wickedness. And God brought discipline on them because of his covenant promises. And here at the end will be a remnant. Zion. Which loves God and his promises. And so he tells them, don't fear Assyria. He comforts those who run to him. He tells, uh, he tells those who do not run to him that they have no comfort. But those who lean on the Holy One of Israel, the Lord God will, have, will give much reason for comfort. Even though great judgment is coming upon that people, he comforts them as a father. And so he reminds them of what he did to Egypt when Egypt oppressed Israel. And he reminds them of what he did to Midian when Midian oppressed them. And Assyria will suffer the same fate. Even though God will use Assyria to discipline his people. He says, don't be worried about them. They're just a tool in my hand to discipline you. And when, when I am done with them, they will be done. Those who lean on me will be comforted. Freed from their oppression. Verse 27, we're going to leave for the very end. If you don't mind, the part that comes right before the last section, it, it poetically describes, the next section poetically describes the actual historical events. But verse 27 seems to say why those things will not destroy and end God's people. So we're going to leave there, leave it there with your permission. So let's go to verse 28. Here we're going to actually see sort of like a poetic version of the the actually events in history that brought in this, these, uh, this destruction. Verse 28. He has come to Aoth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Lasha. O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight, and the inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day, he will halt at Nob, and he will shake his his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So these verses, as I said, poetically describe the advance of the Assyrian army. And you can be forgiven if you don't know the geography of all those cities and where they were uh, placed. But essentially it's this, if, if, if Winnipeg was Zion, which it's not, but if it was, it would be basically saying this. 
coming from the West. Oh, he's coming into Regina and then to Brandon. And now he's in Portage. And now the residents of Headingley are running and screaming. They stand waiting to pounce on Winnipeg and they start intimidating them. They shake their fists and say, we're coming for you. So these towns were described, that are described, they're actually getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And the last we hear of the advance in, is in verse 32. They're shaking their fists right outside of Jerusalem. But verse 33 tells a different story. Assyria doesn't get the honor, the privilege, the boast of destroying Jerusalem and taking them into captivity. That, that would happen. But boastful Acts talking to the swinger of the axe, Assyria, it gets lopped off like a clear-cut forest as it's boasting. Jerusalem will have its punishment. It will fall and it will be taken to exile, but it won't be Assyria. And God has ordained this so that no one will think that this is happening by anybody's plan but his own. To accomplish his plans, to bring their hearts back to him, to lean on him once again. Why would he do this? Because they are his people. Zion is. Her true citizens are. Zion's true citizens are. And who are her true citizens? We already learned this as we've gone through Isaiah. Who are the true citizens of Zion? Those who trust in the coming son of David. Those who believe in the son who would be born at Christmas. Those who believe in the king of kings in Emmanuel. Those are the true citizens of Zion. Who trust in the covenant that God made with the family, the line of David, the throne of David. He calls them my people. And we'll go back to verse 27. That gives us more detail. Why is it that they will not be utterly destroyed, but actually will be Blessed, ultimately blessed by these events. It points us back to chapter 9 that spoke of the coming son of David, Emmanuel, God with us. Remember in chapter 9, the government will be upon his shoulder and the burden and yoke he will break. That sounds a little bit like chapter 10 verse 27, doesn't it? It's throwing our minds back to chapter 9 in the Emmanuel child. He said, because of God's oath, to David. Now that phrase, the yoke will be broken because of the fat. It could also mean because of the oil. So we think about it from the fat and oil. It's unclear. So it could mean like God is going to bless them so much. This, uh, you picture them as an ox with a yoke on it. It's going to bless them so much. It's going to get so big and strong and fat that that yoke is going to snap. It could mean that. Um, and it might, it might mean that and it would accomplish that purpose. But I think because of pointing, throwing us back to the son of David in chapter 9, saying those things about shoulder and yoke, it more likely means, and it doesn't change the meaning, so we don't have to worry there, because of the oil, meaning this, because of the oil of the anointing of the son of David. Because of God's covenant with David and David's people. That David would always have a throne and that his sons would always reign over it. And that he would one day have a son who would reign perfectly over his people forever. And he would bring, establish, and uphold the kingdom of God over all things. And he would reign for his people's good. 
Dear Christian, this is your hope. If in your suffering and in blessing you lean on Christ, you can trust in him. And he will use his purposes in history to bless you. Even wicked things happening in history, God does for your blessing. Kevin read for us Acts chapter 4. Speaking of the wicked actions of Israel and of the Romans in crucifying Christ. And what is said here? What is said is that these wicked things happened by the sovereign predestination of God. Such a wicked and terrible thing happened to Christ. And it was God's plan. It was God accomplishing his holy purposes. And what were his holy purposes? But to glorify himself and to save the bride of his son. And so when we see wicked men wielding axes, wielding social media accounts and tanks and trying to wield governments and all of these things, dear friends, first thing we need to remember is that we should not, we should repent of those things which they themselves are doing. We should repent of things that God calls sin. We should not feel safe in sin. We should repent. And we should run to the Savior, to Christ, who has died for our sins by the plan of God, using a very wicked thing to accomplish very lovely purposes. We should run to him to be rescued from sin rather than diving into it. But we should also do is not fear these men. We should not agree that they are in control. Therefore, we do not need to fear that their agenda is being accomplished. Because if we do, we will run to them or men like them. But this passage tells us, dear church, that we never have to fear who is in control. Unless God is our enemy, we never have to fear who's in control. And God would be our enemy if it weren't for his son who suffered as the enemy on the cross on our behalf so we could be treated as sons and daughters as he deserves. And because of God's oath to David, to the son of David, to Christ, we can have confidence that whatever is happening in the world is for God's glory and for his bride's good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not only sovereign over all things, um, in that you use your sovereignty to punish sin and to glorify yourself and to expose sin. Lord, we are grateful that, that your plan included sending your son to be killed at the hands of wicked men, men just like us, to accomplish your great purpose of redeeming a sinful bride which we have the privilege of being part of. We certainly don't deserve it, Lord. And we are and would be exactly like those men who we see now wielding wicked power over the world and over culture. We would be exactly like them, Lord, if you would have permitted it. We are grateful that you have died for our sins, Christ.
so that we would not get what we deserve, which is just put on display by these men, but that we are now in Christ. We are in the son of David by faith. So Father, I pray you would give us that faith by your spirit to love that you are sovereign, to love that you are the judge of sin, and also desire to be your children and trust that Christ has died and risen to make that happen. Father, I pray that you'd make us a joyful people, knowing that the one who rules the world loves us. I pray that that would transform us. In Jesus' name.